Matthew chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1. This is God's word, eternally true. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers of Judah, least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their own way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now look down to verse 16. Verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then uh, what was said uh, to the, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Hold on just a second. I'm shifting gears. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here ends our reading. Uh, there's a response of thankfulness written for you in your bulletins. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. We hear so many things at, uh, at Christmas time uh, as we read the biblical texts, let alone stuff about Shrek and what his Christmas is about or whatever that is. Uh, uh, but uh, so many things, so many ideas, uh, king and a star and, and, and Bethlehem and, and uh, Nazareth and angels and dreams. Uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to hard to focus. And so Matthew focuses on us, uh, us on a number of these things. And as he writes to Jewish Christians, probably in, in Antioch, um, up in uh, Syria, uh, north of Jerusalem, toward the, the Mediterranean coast, and he defines things for them and explains to them how Jesus related to the Old Testament scriptures. We've been looking at those things and uh, various um, utterances of Old Testament prophets and, and how they related to Jesus and who he was. As we look at these things, one, one thing we should understand is that God didn't give um, in the Old Testament. He just wasn't dropping secret, secret hints in the Old Testament. That's often how that's presented to you and to me, that God is all of a sudden, like last week, we looked at uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah um, chapter 7. And Isaiah is having this conversation with Ahaz, king of Israel, in uh, the 730s B.C. And all of a sudden we're told to think, to, to say that, and now all of a sudden he talks about Jesus. And now he talks back about the Assyrians invading him. <laughs> um, and so we want to see how, as the Old Testament uh, is brought into the New Testament, what it really means. Um, it's not a, a not a prediction, so to speak, of of 
of, of Jesus and all these little hints that are given that meant nothing to kings like Ahaz or that meant nothing to Micah. Micah was talking to Hezekiah 700 BC about the uh, Assyrians during his own day that were causing them trouble. But the eventual, as you saw in that Micah passage, the eventual exile to Babylon that was to happen in about a hundred years and, and God's assurance uh, that the Davidic kingship would rise again after that exile. Um, so God wasn't just saying, okay, Micah, I know you're talking to Hezekiah right now, 700 BC, but I'm gonna drop a little hint in there. So in 2022, people can say, see, here's a prediction about Jesus. Um, but I want you to understand that all the Bible is about Jesus, just like Jesus said in Luke 24. Just like the writer of Hebrews indicates to us that all the stuff in the Old Testament, those were shadows, actual things that happened, but that gave us the kind of the structures of what Jesus would do and who he would be for us. And so that's what we look at um, this morning. You see there, I've entitled this exhortation, Bethlehem, a king, and the good news of Christmas. And so as I was uh, planning for this, I was looking at these different little things that are popped into us for, for uh, Christmas time. And, and today we're talking about Bethlehem. And what Bethlehem meant to someone reading the Gospel of Matthew back in, I think, around A.D. 44, as it was written up to the people in, in, um, in Antioch. When they heard Bethlehem and that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, what did that mean to them? And it meant a lot. It had all kinds of meaning to them because they understood their Old Testaments. They understood what Micah was talking about in Micah 4 and Micah 5 when Micah referenced, uh, um, when Micah referenced the, the town of Bethlehem. So here we go. Uh, if you'd like to fill out blanks in an outline, you can do that. If you want to just listen, that's fine too. But the first thing we talk about and that we're to see here in this passage is the significance of Bethlehem. Um, now, you're going to have to write that word a bunch. I, I included it a lot in your blanks there, so get ready. Um, sorry, you can't cut and paste here. Um, you're just going to have to write it over and over. So get the spelling right and then copy each time. <laughs> the significance of Bethlehem is that Jesus and uh, uh, that in Jesus, you have a king. That's the primary meaning of Bethlehem. It's not that it was a cute little town. It's not that it was close to Jerusalem, which it kind of was. It wasn't too far from Jerusalem. But the significance of Bethlehem and that Jesus was born there, it means that a king was born and that you have a king. And you, know, you folks have been in the church a while. You, you know, that's a big thing. Jesus presents himself as, and the gospel itself as the kingdom of God is being re-upped because I'm the king and I'm here, son of David, yes, that's me. Okay. And, and so when we think of, when we think of uh, Bethlehem, that's to tie into all this Old Testament meaning. Why was the little town of Bethlehem, uh, why was the little town of Bethlehem in the Old Testament significant? The only reason it was ever significant is because that's where the kingship came from. It emanated from there. And so if you were receiving the Gospel of Matthew, can you imagine that, receiving one of these books of the Bible, being in the original congregation that got this and heard it read to you, um, inspired by the Spirit of God. But when you heard that Bethlehem and you were a Jew and maybe you were wondering if you had done the right thing in believing in Jesus, what you heard was, yes, I have, because Jesus is the rightful king. He came from, from Bethlehem. So the significance of Bethlehem for you, too, is that in Jesus, you have a king. So A here, just to help you understand the scriptures a little bit better. The chief priests and teachers of the law were not predicting. So Herod, Herod here is the, 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 the magi come from the east. And the term magi, just so you know, it's the same term for the, um, the, the wise men around uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. It's the same word. Okay, you know how the Nebuchadnezzar has all these wise men around him and they can't interpret the dreams, but Daniel can. Okay, that's this group of guys um, 600 years later. 
same crew, coming from the east, which is where Babylon was. Okay, so they come in and, and, they, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They just come into Jerusalem and ask this. And Herod the Great um, hears this, and it's King Herod the Great. And so we see here in this passage, he's intimidated by that. He fakes like he wants to worship Jesus. And then when he realizes that he's, the wise men haven't come back to him, he's furious, it says. Not because he didn't get to worship. <laughs> but you find out, no, he uses the time that the wise men said the star came up. They probably said a year ago or two years ago. And he says, very well, let's kill all the male children in Bethlehem two years old and younger, because that's the time the wise men told me they first saw the star. Because I don't want to keep competing king to me. Okay? So um, the chief priest and the teachers of the law, he gathers them to himself because he's heard this rumor. These, these wise men from Babylon, probably, from the east are here, and they're asking about this king of the Jews who's been born. And he's like, wait a minute, I'm the king of the Jews. Caesar gave me that job. I don't want to give it up. And so he brings these wise men to himself. And he, or sorry, he brings not the wise men to himself yet. He brings the, the, the priests and the teachers of the law to him. And he says, you know, where, where is the king to be born? Where was the Christ to be born? Now, another thing there to just see, Christ is king. King is Christ. So the wise men come in and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod hears it and he says, oh, king of the Jews. Well, where is the Christ to be born? Because Christ just means anointed one and anointed one means the king. Okay, so these terms are just interchangeable in scripture. Um, Herod's just using a synonym for king when he said, when he asked the priests and the teachers of the law where the Christ was to be born. And if he was speaking to them in, in, in uh, uh, Hebrew, if he had that ability, if Herod did, he said, where is the Messiah to be born? Because that was a Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ. Um, and they are not predicting anything. They're just saying what's true in the Old Testament. A thoroughly, I'll get back to your outline here for you. The, the priests and teachers of the law were not predicting the coming of the Messiah, some new office created in the Bible. It's not a new office. Um, the Messiah simply meant the anointed one. They're not predicting the coming of the Messiah, but we're start stating a thoroughly, that's your, that's your word there, thoroughly known or clearly known or well-known Old Testament fact. And here's the Old Testament fact. They were letting Herod know. The kings of God's people all originated from the town of Bethlehem. We saw it this morning. Jim read it for us. Uh, when God makes his choice for king, Saul was the people's choice, uh, but, but David wins the, the Oscar, um, <laughs> not the people's choice award. Um, Saul was the people's choice, but, but uh, David was God's choice. And so God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 17, okay, this king I've been talking about uh, since the days of, of Genesis 1, um, that I'm bringing to God's people, um, that Hannah rejoiced over the birth of her son, your mother, um, Samuel, rejoiced over your birth because she said in 1 Samuel 1 that you will anoint kings. And so, Samuel, here's the king I want you to anoint. Go to, guess where? Bethlehem. No kings had come from there before. There was only King Saul. Um, king Saul was a Benjamite. He wasn't from Bethlehem. Uh, he's from Gibeah. Um, and so God sends uh, Samuel down to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons. He doesn't tell him which one. And you know the story. Samuel goes through all the, all the sons and finally says, the Lord said it's none of these. And so finally they go get the eighth son out in the field. That's David. And the Lord confirms with Samuel, this is the one. And so Samuel takes the, the horn of oil that he's brought with him to anoint the new king. And he anoints David there before his father and his, and his, and his brothers uh, there. And then in uh, 2 Samuel 7, I reference it there for you. 
God assures uh, David, as David has become king over all the tribes of Israel, that from now on, every king over God's people would be one, should be one, of David's sons, of David's descendants. So David, you know, in, in Old Testament uh, life, you know, you were from a certain town, and that remained forever. Uh, if you were a Judahite, which David was, if you're from Bethlehem, that was the plot of land you were given by Joshua. Your forefathers were given that, and you didn't move from there. You didn't steal anyone else's plot of land. You stayed in that plot of land the Lord had given you. And so all Jews knew, all our kings, their origins are from Bethlehem. And so uh, the, the priests and teachers of the law communicate this from 1 Samuel 16, from Second Samuel, from Second Samuel chapter seven, and then also they've got something else in mind. B in your outline. B in your outline. So you see, they're not. You know, Herod has said, "Where's the king to come from?" And they say, "All our kings come from Bethlehem." So if there's a new king who's been born, you need to go down there and see him. Right? This is not supernatural knowledge that he's given these priests or teachers of the law. They just knew their Old Testaments. All our kings. Where's the origin of all our kings? Bethlehem. Anyone could answer that, you know, growing up and learning their Old Testaments um, there. But B, uh, God had also assured his people of the return, the return, that's your word, the return of, the, of a Davidic king after the exile to Babylon. Um, the exile went from 597 to uh, 538, so about 61 years uh, there, stating that the king would come again from Bethlehem. And so Jim read for us from uh, uh, Micah 4, uh, 8 through 10 there, and, and Micah's talking before the exile, a hundred years before the exile, and he's talking to King Hezekiah, and he's talking about how, how uh, God's people are going to be for a time without a king. And that Mount Zion, Jerusalem, would be abandoned. But then God would return his people. And you can look at it again this, you know, this afternoon. Or if you want to look at it now, you can. Micah 4 and Micah, and Micah 5. God would return his people from exile. And he would again give them a Davidic king to rule over them. Um, those were a couple of questions that people had in their mind when they were exiled. Has God abandoned us forever? And the prophets say, you will go to exile, but God will not abandon you forever. And the other thing was, should we throw out the Davidic kingship? Because look where it got us, exile. And God said, nope, when you come back from exile, a son of David will reign over you. And so we see this in Isaiah, you know, reference to David reigning over God's people after the exile. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Jonah. We see it here in, in Micah. Um, that, that God will bring back the son of David uh, from exile to reign over the people post-exile. Okay, so the priests and the, the teachers of the law, they're, again, coming from this. Our kings have always come from Bethlehem. And God told us that after the exile, and it is after the exile after all, uh, another uh, Davidite would reign over us as, as king. Um, so, see, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem means you, as a Christian, have a king. So at Christmas time, when you hear Bethlehem, think king, the home of the king, the birthplace of the kings God has for us. Uh, God communicates to David in 2 Samuel 7, this is forever. This will not cease. And so we as Christians can see that now because the son of David, Jesus, is forever our king. He'll never, he'll never be succeeded by another. Um, he will always be our king. And so God has fulfilled the Davidic covenant to David in, in um, 2 Samuel 7 in Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Now, number two, number two. So that's the significance of Bethlehem. Because of Bethlehem, when you think Bethlehem, think, okay, that means I have a king. Now, number two, the significance of a king. The significance of a king. Uh, now, this is just in general, number two, and this is real fast. The significance of a king is this. The king of a nation, this is A, as an absolute monarch. Okay, so we're not talking about King Charles the Third, right? Third. King Charles the Third. 
uh, where really the nation is run by uh, the House of Lords and the House of Commons, right? It's just a figurehead king. Um, what we're talking about here is a real king who rules, absolute monarch, no legislature. He is the Supreme Court where tough court cases finally end up and he decides this is what we're talking about in scripture. This is what David was. This is what Solomon were. They were the ones who um, who ruled uh, fully. So the king of the nation, the absolute, an absolute monarch, does two things. One, A, he creates the nation's laws. Now in the Old Testament, Israel, God was the ultimate king. And the King David and David's sons carried out the laws of the king above God. So they didn't create new legislation. They just had as the legislation, the, the legislation of God. But a king of a nation creates the nation's laws. That's the first thing a king does for his people. The second thing a king does for people, the king of a nation is in charge of the nation's safety. Okay, so the king of a nation is in charge of the nation's safety. So he's the one who, who needs to make sure there's an army or that he can pull up a militia or whatever it is. So two responsibilities of a king. Creates laws and protects the nation. Provides for the people's security. Now, number three. Number three. So that's the significance of a king. He's the lawmaker and he's the one who gives you security. It secures your borders. Make sure you're safe. So number three, Jesus, that's your blank. Jesus as king and the church. What's our relationship? Jesus as king, what's his relationship to the church? A, A. Know this, that the New Testament continues in this language. Um, the idea of son of David and king for God's people um, is not abandoned in the Old Testament. It's picked up in the New Testament. And so as we look at Jesus, we realize, A, the church is called God's holy nation. Uh, this is this is uh, 1 Peter 2.9. The church is God's holy nation. In other words, we're Israel. Paul calls us this in Galatians 6 and Romans 4, that the church is the Israel of God. Peter just puts it in this, in these terms, that we're God's holy nation. Okay, so that's who we are in this scenario. We're God's holy nation on the earth. Now, we're not a geographical nation. We're not a political nation. We're a spiritual nation. And we're a nation made up of people of every tribe, tongue, and language, and nationality, and, and race. All over, Jesus is reigning from heaven so he can be king over all kinds of people all over the earth and not just limited to earthly Jerusalem and those who are DNA Jewish people descended from uh, Jacob. Okay, um, so we are a nation. The church is a nation. The church needs to think of itself as a nation, not a political nation, not a geographical nation, but a spiritual nation with B, Jesus is the king. Jesus is that we're the nation. Jesus is the king. And he is absolute monarch. Absolute monarch of the holy nation of the church. Jesus is not absolute monarch now of all nations of the earth. Just of the church. When he comes back, he'll be king over all rule over all things. But right now, he's leaving the nations be. And uh, no political nation is God's holy nation. But the church is God's holy nation, Peter tells us. And so um, we are, we are, as we can uh, uh, put it here, uh, and just to emphasize this to you, Matthew 27, uh, 11 there, Pilate asked Jesus if Jesus was king of the Jews, and Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. So very much something Jesus owns, that he's king. And then see, uh, know that you are one of Jesus' citizens and that he is your ruler. <coughs> 
Philippians 3.20. You're a citizen of heaven. Guess who's in heaven as king? Seated at the right hand of God. Jesus. You're being a citizen of heaven doesn't mean heaven is ruling you, except in some figurative sense. It means Jesus is ruling you. He's in the heavenly Jerusalem, seated on his throne as king, ruling over us, his holy nation. And we are his citizens. We see this in, in uh, chapter 2 uh, of Matthew, verse 6. Uh, as the, um, if you look there in your Bibles, uh, this is what the priests and the teachers of the law uh, say, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler. So realize as a Christian, Jesus is your, your ruler. This is language that comes from Micah 5.2. Uh, Micah 5.2 talks about this, this ruler that God would give his people after the exile from Babylon. Now, D. Jesus as king, realize this, getting into what a king does for his nation. Jesus as king speaks to you today. He speaks you to, to you today, telling you how to live through the Bible. So Jesus, your king, um, doesn't show up in a press conference on TV. Or you won't read about what he said in the newspaper. But you will read his will for your life and what you are to do, and what the rules of engagement are in your life in the Bible. Because he, as he told his apostles, he would send his spirit to them um, to teach them um, so that they could communicate to us what his will is for us. So we looked at, if you want to look at your uh, preparing for the hearing of God's word, uh, what is the Bible? It's not something that's the prophet's own interpretation. Okay, it's not Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, it, it's not some book that we can buy at the Christian bookstore uh, that's a, a man's best thoughts about God. Uh, but rather, uh, it's men who spoke from God who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, this is the king giving us the laws for us who are part of his nation. Here's how you behave. You don't take revenge because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, you forgive as you've been forgiven. Uh, you treat others with kindness and compassion. Um, these are the laws of our king. These aren't just, just random commandments that are just kind of out there that God wants us to do. This is Jesus, our king, our legislator in a person telling us how to live. That's what laws do. They tell us how to live. What's good for us and what does, doesn't damage other people. That's why you have laws in a nation. Um, and so Jesus gives us this legislation, this law, uh, these laws uh, in the Bible. He says to his own disciples um, in John 16, he says, you, <laughs> I always think of Jack Nicholson when I you know, th say this. He says, you can't handle this right now. But after I've gone to my father, I'll send you my spirit and he will tell you more. He'll teach you. And this is Jesus looking forward to the fact that these guys would write the New Testament. That they would provide new, they would explain who Jesus was to everybody. Uh, when he, the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. So I will send the Spirit to you, and the Spirit will guide you along in my commandments for you as a people. Now, number four, number four. Jesus is your absolute monarch. You're a citizen in his kingdom, uh, yet you never need to fear the rule of Jesus over you. Um, that could be a fear for us. You know, Jesus is my absolute monarch. It's not a democracy. Uh, when he tells me to do something in Scripture, when he tells me to honor my parents, and I say, well, what if I don't honor him here? Is that okay? You know, it's just, it's not, he says, no. <laughs> Read my word. It's not open to debate. 
I'm the absolute monarch. I created you. I know what's good for you. Just listen. Okay. So that could be intimidating for us. What if he tells us something we don't want to do? Especially something that's against our sin nature that we don't want to admit, admit is our sin nature. <laughs> that could be intimidating, right? That if someone says, you know, you have to do everything this person says. Uh, but God has said we have to do everything Jesus says. But instead of, of fearing, uh, instead of fearing this, number four, rejoice. Rejoice in Jesus' kingly rule over you because he rules you not as a tyrant, but as a shepherd. He rules you not as a tyrant, but as a shepherd. You have a king who rules you as a shepherd. And if you're thinking David now, good job. What's David's training to be king? He's the shepherd. Okay. Um, so, yeah, again, uh, look at verse six there. Um, for out of you will come a ruler, halfway down in verse six, out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Notice again, the crossover of the term church in Israel. Okay, God knew what was up. You know, Jesus would shepherd the church, but he calls the church here Israel and any Jews who would become a part of the church there. Um, Micah 5, 4, this is what they're, this is what they're quoting. Uh, in Micah 5, 4, that he would stand and shepherd his people. That's what Micah 5, 4 says about this king who would come for, out of the line of David after the, when they returned from their exile from Babylon. So A, um, realize some things about a shepherd. Uh, firstly, A, a shepherd loves his sheep. A shepherd loves his sheep. And a shepherd is, next line for you, invested. A shepherd is invested in their well-being. Think about this. If you're a shepherd, you want your sheep to live as long as they can. You want them to be fed well so their wool is, is healthy, so they're growing. Um, you don't want them to die or to be sickly. You want them to be thriving. You don't want them to get picked off by a poisonous snake or a wolf or a lion or a bear as David had to deal with when he was shepherding the sheep. A shepherd is fully invested in the well-being of his sheep. And that's the kind of king you and I have. A king who shepherds his people. He's invested in you doing well. In you being prosperous of soul regardless of what country you're living in and what's going on with your personal wealth or even your health. He wants you to be uh, flourishing in your, in your soul. He's invested in that. Um, he loves you. Jesus put it this way in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, I love you. You're my, you're my sheep. I love you. B, um, so a shepherd loves his sheep. He's invested in their well-being. B, a shepherd's job is seen to his sheep's good. That's his whole job. Make sure the sheep are doing well. It's seen to his sheep's good. Again, Micah 5, 4 talks about Jesus, uh, uh, or talks about the, the king after the exile standing and shepherding the flock is what it says there. In the Lord Jesus, Psalm 23, 1, right? The Lord is my shepherd, so I will not be in want. A shepherd's whole job is seen to your good. And it's good news if the Lord is your shepherd. Because he is all, all powerful and can do what he wants. Um, John 10, 11 um, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one David was talking about in Psalm 23. I'm the one Micah was talking about in Micah 5, 4, who stands and shepherds his sheep. I am the good shepherd. So know that Jesus shepherds and rules you out of love for you because he loves you. And he always shepherds you for your good. 
for your good. Now see, Jesus, your king, shepherds you by his strength. That's Micah 5, 4. He'll stand and shepherd his people in the Lord's strength. In the Lord's strength. He shepherds you by his strength in two arenas. In two arenas. First arena, number one. Jesus shepherds you by guiding your path in life. By guiding your path in life. Think of a shepherd. He guides his sheep. He leads them. The shepherd, the sheep follow the shepherd. Okay, the shepherd is their guide as to where to go next. The shepherd has a higher vantage point. He can, you know, he's looking from up here and he can see where good pasture is, or he knows it, and the sheep don't know it. The sheep just follow. So Jesus shepherds you by guiding your path in life by his laws. By his laws. And so, you know, you folks who've been in the church for a while, you here for a while, you know that God's laws are not a bummer. God's laws are not a bummer. They're what your shepherd guides you by. He's telling you how to live so you don't explode your marriage relationship in a bad way. I mean, he doesn't explode your relationship with your daughter or your son. He doesn't mean you're estranged from your, your, you know, the important people in your life because you're following his laws. He made you and he takes care of you. He gives you laws to walk in, to follow by or follow in. So his laws are the commands of scripture. Um, you see this in Psalm 23. We read it. He leads me. He guides me, David says, speaking of God's law. So David was speaking of the law of Moses. He guides me in paths of righteousness, leads me beside quiet waters. The Lord is a shepherd who leads me by his word, uh, as he says, how I love your law. Um, A, A for you. Realize that you're doing these laws doesn't save you from eternal death. That's not why, not why we love the law of God. The law of God doesn't save us from eternal death. As Paul argues in Galatians 3, the law has no power to give you life or eternal life. That's not why we love God's law. Um, rather, saving, that's your blank, saving you from death is the job of your king and shepherd. You get that? How that makes sense? If you're a sheep... Whose job is it that you don't get swallowed up by a, a wolf or a lion or a bear? That's not your job. You haven't been equipped as a sheep to fight a lion and win. But your shepherd has a rod and a staff. The rod was like a, 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 a policeman's, you know, what do they call those things that they can, billy club. And a rod a shepherd used, and he went whack like that, or David with his sling, to protect the sheep. That was the shepherd's job. Jesus' job as your king is to protect the border so that you're safe. Remember that? That's one of the two. The king has these two jobs to, to, to provide legislation for you for, you know, a healthy life, but also to secure the borders, to protect you from enemies. And those two things are or, you know, that thing, the guiding and protecting are the job of the shepherd as well. That's why God sovereignly had David be a shepherd before he was ever a king. And that's why Jesus is your king, is your, is your shepherd as well. Your king's job is to fight your enemies. So that you can stay at home as a king eating your mom's bread that she just made and that just came out of the oven. Okay, it's not your job as a kid to protect your life. That's the job of your shepherd. If you're a sheep, that's the job of your, of your king, if you're a citizen. So realize this: salvation is based on what Jesus does. He takes those jobs for you. So we don't rejoice over the law because that means that we'll have our life secured eternally. That's what Jesus has done for you as a believer. Jesus has secured your life. He means that the, the wolf of Satan will not end your life but that you'll live forever because jesus is your shepherd because jesus is your king protecting you from all 
protecting you from all enemies. So saving you from death is the job of your king and shepherd. Um, so um, that's that's what uh, Psalm 23, uh, 4 there talks about. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Um, B, but back to God's law, why we rejoice in it. We don't rejoice in it because if we do it well enough, we'll have eternal life. We have eternal life because we have a king and a shepherd who gets that for us. Uh, but we rejoice in the laws of God be for your, uh, because they make your life better. That's your blank there. They make your life better. Jesus said, right after he finished saying, I am the good shepherd, he said, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly, that it might be to the full, that your soul might be full, that you might rejoice in things, that when people say dumb things to you that would discourage you, you know what's true and you can discard their false accusations against you or their false evaluation of whether your life is good or not. Um, you know, last, last night I was at, at, a, at a, f a function and someone was graduating and, and, um, you know, so I was sitting there with the, the two men I was sitting with at the, at the table, they were being really nice to me. They weren't putting me down or anything, but one is very successful in business and one is a very successful orthopedic surgeon. And they're talking about all this stuff and golf clubs and all this stuff. And what do you do? <laughs> the, 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 not the, not the businessman, but the orthopedic surgeon said to me, he was very interested in my hip, and we were talking all about that too. I said, I'm a pastor. You know, and they didn't look down at me because of this, or at least they didn't say anything, and they were very kind to me and all that kind of thing. But I could be discouraged, you know, because of that. But that's based on a false evaluation of things, as if I didn't have God's law. They said the rich man is the one who knows God and who loves him and, and has him as king and never has to worry about the day when I die what that will mean for me. It never has to worry about my life, what that will mean for me in my life because my shepherd has a rod. And when someone comes to harm me, he takes that rod and he whacks them on the head. Um, you know, I, I do like that, you know, Amy Grant song from about 1982, Angels Watching Over Me. All kinds of things that could have happened to you and I that we never know about because God in heaven sees it coming. <laughs> now he decrees all things, but he keeps things from coming our way that, that could have come our way. He holds us up in traffic, and then we find out there was this huge accident that happened in the place we would have been had we not been held up in traffic 15 minutes ago. All kinds of things like that. But these laws for your life make your life better. Um, the King Jesus who shepherd you, shepherds you says, hey, come over here. Here's the good pasture. We're going this way now. We were going over there. And he knows that that's, you know, just weeds and thorns and thistles. And there's some wolves and poisonous snakes over there. He says, hey, come over here. And that's what Jesus does in his law. When he gives us laws about how to live our, how to, how to live our lives, to be compassionate, to be understanding toward people, um, to do our work heartily as for the Lord rather than just for men. He tells us these things because that's the green pasture we get to. And so we love his law because his law says to us, don't just do what's right when people are looking. Do what's right because God is looking. And, and do what's right because your work and what you're doing is benefiting the people around you. And that's how you love the people around you, by doing what's, by doing what's right. And so these laws for your life make your life better. C, know that you're not left on your own. But one of the ways that Jesus shepherds you in the strength of the Lord is he gives you the strength of the Lord personally. That is, see, Jesus gives you his spirit. Jesus doesn't give you his laws so that you know how to live your life. He gives you his spirit so that you can. So that you can say no when his way is not the easiest way. When his way is a little bit harder. When his way is against what our sin nature is telling us to do, he's given us his spirit so that we can say, as Paul says in Titus 2, we can say no to ungodliness and, and, and live a life uh, for his glory. Um, so uh, you can uh, see, see that in, in uh, Micah 5, 4. That's God's strength in us. Um, John 3, 6 through 8. 
Um, he gives us his strength, his spirit, so that we can see and, and believe. Um, his spirit is present in us, 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 19. And, and that spirit is the spirit of Christ. That's Romans 8, 9. Um, so that we can, Titus 2, live in godliness in our lives. So D, D. Uh, with that, um, our king, who is law force, our shepherd who's saying, hey, go this way. And he says, hey, go this way by by the scriptures and by the commands he has for us in, in the scriptures. So D, look. Look to Jesus and his commands to increase your life's quality. This is where American evangelicalism has it backwards. We say, don't look at the laws because American evangelicalism thinks looking at the laws is for justification for eternal life. And we say, no, 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 no. God never says that. But we look to the laws as how, for, for how to live instead because that improves our lives, our lives quality. Uh, that increases the quality of our lives. So we look to the laws and we say, how should I act in these circumstances? How should I respond to this person who's flattering me? Or how should I respond to this person who's putting me down? And we always, you know, go, we go back to this book because this is what blesses our life. This is what gives us the quality of life. Because we act in the ways he's directed us as he shepherds us. Go this way and not and not that way over there. Or as our king, he says, here are my laws. Obey these instead of what everybody else does. Um, so that's what we look to Jesus and his commands instead of avoiding his commands as something that are bad. You know, David and Jesus and Peter would say, what? God's laws are bad. David said, and all David had Moses. First five books of the Bible, basically. And he says, oh, how I love your law. They're my meditation all day and all night. So look to Jesus and his commands to increase your life's quality, not to be saved. That's the job of your shepherd. Jesus saves you. But one of the kindnesses of your king is that he shows you how to live so that your life is full and abundant. Now, number two. So the two jobs of a king, one is to guide you by his laws. Um, two is to protect you. So number two, Jesus, your shepherd and king, also protects you. Your shepherd protects you as his sheep going to battle against wolves. Your king protects you as his citizen, providing an army to go against foreign armies coming in trying to burn your house down. So A, he protects you in life. Um, this is Psalm 23, 4. Um, you know, his rod and his staff, they, they defend you, uh, they comfort you. But also that, you know, even though I walk through the, shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, that's really talking about life. Um, David was probably descending from Jerusalem at Absalom's rebellion at that point. And he went down the east side of Jerusalem. And that was the Kidron Valley uh, where the, the Garden of Gethsemane was. And because there was a mountain on the east side of it and the west side of it, and there were steep mountains, it hardly gets sun. It's a valley of shadows. And, and David's life would just seem like death at the time. He had conquered Jerusalem and now he is being cast out from it by his own son. And David was reminding himself of these truths God had, uh, had told him in, in the covenant of the, that he made with him, that he, would, that he would be king. And so even though he walks through the valley of sh the shadow of, of death, he talks about. And at the end of the psalm, Psalm 23, he says, I'll return to the house of the Lord in my life. That was his confidence. And so this is through the ups and downs of life that God is talking about. He protects you in life. Ephesians 1.23 is Jesus sitting on the throne in heaven over all principalities, all rule, all dominion for the sake of the church. Okay, So Jesus as your king, Jesus as your shepherd protects you in, in life as a sheep and a citizen. 
B, he also protects you as a shepherd protects his sheep and his king protects his citizens from death. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you were a shepherd and a wolf came or a lion came or a bear came and you engaged that lion, bear, or wolf, if you're hiring, a hireling, Jesus says in John 10, you just get that, you just get out of there. You protect your own life because you care nothing for the sheep. That's what Jesus says in John 10. But he says, but I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. I engage with the lion, the wolf, and the bear. And if I lose my life and they chew on my flesh so that my sheep can get away and be alive, so be it. And so that's what Jesus does for you and me. He goes to the cross. He lays his life out, you know, and, and gives himself up as, as bait, so to speak, as food, so to speak, uh, to be destroyed so that we can be safe while the enemy is engaging with him on the cross. So he protects you. Um, he, he lays down his life for you, the sheep. Um, John eleven twenty five. He says to Martha and Mary, uh, as Lazarus has died, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So, of course, this is not a promise that we won't physically die unless Jesus comes back before. But this is a promise that upon our death, we live on with him. Because he who believes in me, if you've believed in Jesus, even though you die, you live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die, Jesus says. So, next line for you, because Jesus is your shepherd and king, in death you will live, in death you will live in heaven. And this is the source of Paul's confidence as he's in uh, a, a jail in Ephesus or, or Rome, as he writes in, in Philippians 1. His imprisonment may lead to his death, but he says, but that's the better thing. Because if I die, I go to be with the Lord. Or as he says in, in 2 Corinthians 8, you know, to be at home in the body is to be away from the Lord. But to be away from the body, to die, is to be with the Lord. And so this is the assurance we have, not because we've been a good boy or girl, but because we have a king, a shepherd, who laid his life down for us. He's protected us from death. So that even when we physically die, yet we live. Our souls go to be with the Lord in heaven. And then see another kind of way he protects us from death, actually protecting us from a different kind of death. Jesus also protects you at final judgment from the second death, from the second death. Uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25, and he says, when the king comes when the son of man comes in all his glory with all his glorious angels with him he says then the king that's me then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world revelation 20 explains that when jesus comes back there will be final judgment and then he says this when Jesus comes back, Revelation 20, 14, then death and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And then in verse 15, it says, all who are judged based on their deeds and, not, and who don't have their names in Jesus' book of life, which believers have their names in the book of life, but all who are judged based on their deeds are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And this is the second death that Jesus protects us from. He protects us from the first death, bringing our souls alive in heaven to be with him and around his throne, giving him praise. But then when he comes again, he protects us from the second death as well and puts his body, so to speak, between the books in which are written all our evil deeds all our sins, and the judgment we should deserve. So Jesus protects you at final judgment from the second death.
as well. And then D, how does he do this? He protects you by laying down his life in front of death. Think of this, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he knows what's going to happen. He's told, depending on the gospel that you're in, the gospel book that you're in, he's told his disciples about eight times before he goes into Jerusalem, we are going to, we're going to Jerusalem, and when we go there, I'll be betrayed uh, by the, the rulers of the, of the Jews, and I'll be uh, handed over to the Romans, and I'll be crucified. So when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, for, you know, and, and Palm Sunday's happening, and people are rightly declaring him, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel, and they're doing the right thing, and all that hoopla's going on. Jesus knows he's just entered into his death. I won't last another week. I'll be betrayed, and I will die. Jesus goes into Jerusalem to do battle. This is the shepherd seeing the wolf of death coming at his people of all eternity, and Jesus is going out to face that wolf who's come after his sheep. This is Jesus the King who's seeing the enemies coming in and encroaching the borders of the people, God's eternal elect. And he's coming, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem to fight against death, who's coming against all, right? Because it's, it's appointed for all men to die, and then comes judgment, says the writer of Hebrews. But Jesus comes to this earth to seek and to save the lost. He's the good shepherd who fights and overcomes death. He's the king who goes out to battle against our enemies. You know, it's, we, we read it over and over. Look at the front page of your bulletin. Worshiping God by confessing our faith, you know, just above halfway down on the front side of your bulletin. Christ carries out the office of king in subduing us to himself. <laughs> that is, he brings us to faith, makes us a citizen of his uh, so that we take him as our absolute monarch. He subdues us to himself and he rules and defends us. He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Jesus goes into Jerusalem in the last week of his life to conquer our enemy, Satan, to conquer our enemy, death. And that's what he came to this earth to do. That's why he was born in Bethlehem. That's why he was related, a descendant of, of David, because he came to be king. He came to be a king, and the kings in Israel were to be shepherds of God's people. He came not just to guide you in life, and that's good, and that will give you the best life that you can have following his ways for whatever that means for you uh, in terms of persecution, uh, but he also comes to defend you and to conquer um, and to conquer your enemies. So he comes to lay down his life D, in front of death so that he might die and that we might live. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the king of kings dies on a cross to save his people. I mean, what more can be said? The king of kings comes to lay down his life. He dies on a cross for his people. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Glad you have a king. Glad you have a shepherd. Glad there was a son of David born in Bethlehem to be a shepherd king for you. Matthew 2, 2. The wise men had it right. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. And have come, how do we respond to a king like this? We have come to worship him, to declare his worth. What is Jesus worth to you and to me, right? He saves us from eternal death and he guides us in life so that we don't make a muck of it. So our summary here.
the good news of Christmas focused on Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean to us at Christmas? The good news of Christmas is this. In Bethlehem, a king was born. I know this is redundant. A king was born to be king. The king was born to be king and shepherd for you. To guide you in life. To guide you in life and to protect you in life and in death. Let's pray.